Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to ABA Ultimate Showdown, a podcast promoting constructive, respectful, and professional discourse to advance the field of behavior analysis. You have arrived at round four of the showdown. Our fourth topic will center around whether or not restraints are appropriate to use in response to severely challenging behavior. We just want to make sure that we clearly identify ourselves. We are not experts on the specific topics that we discuss. However, we do consider ourselves lifelong learners, always looking to gain more knowledge. During this debate, we will construct arguments for both sides to present the audience with a comprehensive and balanced view of two sides of a controversial topic. So our debate format is a unique combination of several different types that we kind of meshed together. Our debate, this debate, will include a definition of terms followed by a coin toss to determine speaking order. Each debater will have structured speaking kind that's equal, and we will have an opportunity to ask and respond to questions. We want to emphasize our very most important modification to traditional debate formats. There's no winner, and there's no loser. Our intention is to present a different point of view of a controversial topic that you may not have previously considered. We're aiming to disseminate the science in a constructive way by sharing knowledge respectfully. If you're interested in learning more about the debate format we use, we did a whole intro episode on it, so you can listen to that, or you can check out our show notes, and we list it right on our website. The motion for this episode will be, restraints are not appropriate to use regardless of the severity of the behavior. So participating today are Nicole Prozo and Megan Miller, and I'm your host, and here's where it gets confusing, Megan Miller. So two Megan Miller, <laughs> two Megan Millers, and as I always say, there can never be enough. I actually never say that, but I'm really glad that, that Megan is debating with us. Um, so a little background on myself. I was born and raised on the Jersey Shore and worked as a special education teacher for the first 12 years of my career. I'm a BCBA, currently working as a clinical supervisor for Graham Behavior Services. I graduated with a special education undergraduate degree from the College of New Jersey. My uh, master's specialization at Kane University included high incidence disabilities, emotional disturbance. I received my postgraduate certification in ABA from Penn State University. When I am not wearing my behavior analytic hat, I am spending all my free time with my awesome husband and my two little dudes. Megan is going to be presenting the pro side of the debate, that restraints should not be used and treatment should focus on positive behavior supports. Nicole will represent the con side, that restraints can be used safely when the severity of behavior approaches dangerous levels for both the individual and others. So I'm going to give you guys a chance to introduce yourself, so take it away. Hey, I'm Nicole Prozo. I was also born and raised on the Jersey Shore where I continue to reside. I stumbled into this field six years ago while attending the College of New Jersey. I worked part-time at an ABA private school while completing my undergraduate degree in history and secondary education. After I graduated, I taught honors and inclusion classes at an inner city high school. I continued to do in-home therapy and provided respite services part-time. I just couldn't seem to let go of ABA. After two years of teaching, I enrolled at Penn State and took a position teaching full-time at the same school where I was first introduced to ABA in college. To date, I have worked with individuals with autism, among other developmental and behavioral disorders ranging in ages 2 to 24. I finished my master's in special education with an emphasis in applied behavior analysis last year, and I'm eagerly awaiting my BCBA exam results. Hi there, I'm the other Megan Miller. I'm born, raised, and still residing in central New Jersey, and yes, it is such a place. I have worked in the special education field for the past six years serving students on the autism spectrum as well as those who are multiply disabled between the ages of 3 to 21 years old. On the side from teaching, I do respite, in-home therapy, and co-facilitate social skill groups for young age children and teens. I graduated with a special education and early childhood undergraduate degree from Kane University. Recently, I finished my master's specializing in applied behavior analysis from Ball State University. As of now, I am finishing my 1,500 supervision hours and look forward to studying to take my boards in the near future to become a BCBA. Awesome. Thanks, ladies. Let's get started with some debate background and definition. Uh, We're going to make sure we're all on the same page. While researching round four, Nicole and Megan have worked together to research relevant sources with the help of our colleague, Candace Summers. Each source is cited in the show notes found at grambehaviorservices.com backslash showdown. 
During this debate, we will primarily discuss physical and mechanical restraints. We will not discuss chemical restraints or seclusion specifically, but the debaters uh, will reference relevant articles that mention seclusion. We will include a definition of terms prior to the debate so that everyone is on the same page with exactly what is being debated. Today, I'm actually going to give you three definitions of restraint from three different fields. One from behavior analysis, one from the medical field, and one from a legislative assembly bill. There are many other fields that have definitions of restraint, including the families and individuals involved in situations where someone has had to be restrained. We chose three because we wanted to represent some varying stakeholders who were affected by restraints in multiple settings to sh and to show how uh, restraint is kind of viewed across different disciplines. This topic is an important concept far beyond the reaches of behavior analysis, and we've made every effort to make sure that we are respectful to everyone involved. So our first definition. In 2010, in a 2010 statement on restraint and seclusion, the Association for Behavior Analysis International, or ABAI, operationally defines restraint as, quote, restraint involves uh, physically holding or securing the individual either A, for a brief period of time to interrupt and intervene with severe problem behavior, or B, for an extended period of time using mechanical devices to prevent otherwise uncontrollable problem behavior, example, self-injurious behavior, that has the potential to produce serious injury, end quote. Hey, I want to interrupt real fast to let you know that, yes, ABA Ultimate Showdown's parent company, Graham Behavior Services, is an approved ACE provider, and a bunch of our rounds now count for continuing education credits. Great content and CEs, it's like the perfect combination. And it also supports us in developing and continuing the publication of this podcast. So thank you for your support. This episode will count for one ethics continuing education hour. Yes, ethics credits. Uh, in order to earn it, you're going to have to hop on over to our website, grambehaviorservices.com slash showdown, and enter the first code word, which is music. Music. We all enjoy it. Personally, I love the Beatles and Jack Johnson. Love music. M-U-S-I-C first code word is music. Check out our other rounds to earn CE credits from your car, couch, run, or garden. We've got those elusive ethics and supervision credits, so let ABA Ultimate Showdown help you reach that magic 32 hours. And all of your support, again, will allow us to keep bringing you quality, thought-provoking content. So seriously, thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. Now, back to myself. Okay, our second definition. The medical field, specifically the Mental Health Commission, defines mechanical restraints as follows. Quote, mechanical restraint is when staff use items or garments to prevent you from moving your body freely. Examples of mechanical restraint include foam padded gloves and waist straps. If you have cot sides or bed rails to stop you from falling or slipping out of bed, this is not a mechanical restraint. End quote. And our third definition, as of January 1st, 2019, the California Legislature's Bill AB 2657 went into effect, stating that, quote, behavioral restraint means mechanical restraint or physical restraint, as defined in this section used as an intervention when a pupil presents an immediate danger to self or others. Behavioral restraint does not include postural restraints or devices used to improve a pupil's mobility and independent functioning, rather than to restrict movement. Mechanical restraint means the use of a device or equipment to restrict a pupil's freedom of movement. 2A, mechanical restraint does not include the use of devices by peace officers, or security personnel for detention or for public safety purposes. And B, mechanical restraint does not include the use of devices by trained school personnel or by a pupil prescribed by an appropriate medical or related services professional if the device is used for the specific and approved purpose for which the device or equipment was prescribed, end quote. And then it goes on to list several devices. For our podcast, mechanical restraints are going to include helmets, 
seatbelt harnesses, and hand posies. We want to make it clear. Restraints should be used as a last resort as part of a larger behavior intervention plan after antecedent strategies and other interventions did not work. Any plan that is implemented should have been created as a collaboration of the individual's team. And, as members of the team, parents or guardians need to have been consulted and had consented to all aspects of the plan. All plans should function within local, state, and federal laws, including ADA and IDEA. Lozano Smith, California Attorneys at Law, they put out a podcast on restraint, and they refer to a behavior intervention plan as both an escalation cycle management plan and as a comprehensive de-escalation plan, and they describe the if-then response of how student behavior affects staff intervention. They term it a cycle because they say that plans should be written to include strategies to address when, quote, early escalation behaviors moves into subsequent escalation behaviors peaks at problem behaviors, and then moves into de-escalation with finally staff looking at post-incident behaviors, end quote. In their podcast, attorneys from Lozano Smith references that California State Education Law 49001 states that, quote, in the general education setting, the education quote, uh, code provides that actions using an amount of force that is reasonable and necessary are not construed as corporal punishment if they are used by a person employed by or engaged in a public school to address a threat of physical injury to persons for purposes of self-defense or in the instance when you are trying to obtain a dangerous object from a student, end quote. California's legislature's bill, AB 2657, that we referenced before, went into effect stating that students have, quote, the right to be free from the use of seclusion and behavioral restraint of any form if it would be used as a means of coercion, discipline, convenience, or retaliation, end quote. The Lozano-Smith attorneys comment that, quote, specifically, school districts and non-public schools and agencies may use restraint and seclusion only to control behavior that poses a clear and present danger of serious physical harm to the pupil or others that cannot be immediately prevented by a response that is less restrictive. Ms. Sarah Garcia states that if force was used that was not reasonable and necessary to prevent imminent harm, it can be considered assault. The special education attorneys in this podcast go on to state that, quote, districts should also not use behavioral restraint of any kind that would restrict breathing, uh, end quote, including being placed, quote, face down with their hands behind their back, which impairs their ability to breathe, is extremely dangerous, and is contrary to the training of all de-escalation restraint programs, end quote, that the attorney had been exposed to. She points out that there is a misconception that individuals should remain in a restraint until they are calm. The attorney states that a critical component of utilizing restraint is that it should, quote, not be used for any longer than is necessary to eliminate the clear and present imminent danger of serious physical harm, end quote. As ABA providers, this needs to be the standard across the board when restraint becomes necessary. This one bill cites restraint in public school settings specifically. Every state has laws on restraints in many different settings, and it would be impractical for us to review them here, but we just wanted to expose you to one example of how restraints are handled legally. Okay, intro and definition of terms complete. That was a little bit of a doozy, but definitely necessary, so everyone in this debate can debate the motion and not need to explain all of that. Now to channel our inner NFL referee and start the debate with a coin toss. The winner will get to choose whether to speak first or second. Heads goes to Megan, representing the pro side. Tails goes to Nicole, representing the con side. Here we go. All right, it is heads. Megan, I know you guys were talking about going second before, so do you want to go second? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, awesome, thanks. Okay, so Megan will speak second for the pro side. Nicole will speak first for the con side and give the opening remarks discussing that restraints can be used safely when the severity of behavior approaches dangerous levels for both the individual and others. Again, the motion is restraints are not appropriate to use regardless of the severity of the behavior. Go ahead, Nicole. Restraint procedures are appropriate to use in circumstances involving severe aggression or self-injurious behaviors that have the capacity to produce serious injury to the client or staff when other least restrictive procedures have been proven ineffective. To start, I'm going to argue two points. 
First, sometimes positive behavior supports, as great as they are, just aren't enough when managing severe aberrant behaviors. Second, restraint procedures maintain the safety of clients and staff. While the use of restraints is controversial, mechanical restraints get the worst rep. Currently, 22% of states in the U.S. have banned the use of mechanical restraints by law, with many more placing restrictions on them. When one thinks of mechanical restraint, they may envision ankle or wrist manacles, waist restraint belts, or a wedge with straps. However, mechanical restraints also include headgear, hand posies, which resemble padded mittens, and if you think about it, even seatbelts. We hopefully use seatbelts daily, whether it's been conditioned or we're engaging in rule-governed behavior. Often children with special needs may not understand the rules or have not come into contact with a contingency that would decrease these behaviors while in the car or increase the behavior of wearing a seatbelt. So what happens when a child engages in severe challenging behaviors such as eloping from their seat to aggress toward the bus driver or removing their shoes to throw them at other passengers? This simply isn't safe for anyone in a moving vehicle. Yes, antecedent an interventions such as placing a child away from their peers, removing their shoes once they're seated, or having an aide sit with them can be used. But what happens when data support that these measures aren't enough? When this happens, many school districts turn to more intrusive mechanical restraints such as vests with harnesses or seatbelt locks to ensure the safety of everyone on board. While a seatbelt, antecedent interventions, or positive behavior supports are the ideal least restrictive measures, we must consider what happens when they aren't enough. When positive behavior supports are no longer sufficient, research suggests that restraining procedures are safe to implement for individuals with special needs dealing with severe aberrant behaviors. Sprite, Lipinski, Hill, and Halpin analyzed incident reports from a residential facility and found that planned restraints, or those done contingent on a predetermined antecedent and approved by multiple stakeholders, resulted in a fewer injuries than restraints used in crisis situations. Restraint procedures resulted in injuries 6.3% of the time. Only minor injuries such as small abrasions or lacerations were observed during the study. These findings suggest that, when appropriate, restraint procedures are safer to use as a component in an individual's behavior intervention plan than reactively responding to a challenging behavior. For example, I can think of one particular client who puts holes in his walls made of cement board, has broken windows, or attempted to headbang into concrete. Staff who intervene were often headbutted or bitten, leading to staff injury. Sometimes when the behavior could not be blocked, these events would lead to lacerations or abrasions on the client, and it was difficult to assess if the client had a concussion. Ultimately, a plan was written by the supervising behavior analyst that called for the client to wear a protective helmet contingent upon one headbang until the client no longer engaged in the behavior for one minute. This planned mechanical restraint was approved by multiple stakeholders, including a human rights committee, the clinical team, and the client's parents. While other positive behavior supports were implemented to teach appropriate, functionally equivalent behaviors, the magnitude and severity of this self-injury called for more restrictive measures to maintain safety. Okay, thanks, Nicole. Now we're going to move on to Megan, who will give the opening remarks representing the pro side of the debate, stating that restraints should not be used and treatment should focus on positive behavior supports. Again, the motion is restraints are not appropriate to use regardless of the severity of behavior. Before beginning my discussion on why mechanical restraints are not appropriate to use with clients regardless of the severity of the behavior, it is important to understand what exactly a mechanical restraint is. When mechanical restraints are used on clients, they include arm splints, hand mitts, safety belts, safety straps, and limb cuffs. At least, these are what I know that are commonly used. These mechanical restraints serve the purpose of protecting individuals from severe self-injurious behaviors that have the possibility to cause abrasions, scarring, calluses, hematomas, and infections, and I'm sure there's more. Now, there are those that say mechanical restraints are necessary to maintain safety of client and others, which I could understand why, as Nicole mentioned before. However, there are those like me who feel that we, as behavior analysts, need to do better with interventions for our clients than implement such highly intrusive procedures. Let me explain why. I believe that all behavior analyst intentions are to keep our clients safe from harm, which is why mechanical restraints may be implemented during severe problematic behavior that cannot be controlled otherwise. But I also believe that there are less restrictive interventions that should be put in place that can serve our clients with dignity and as a safer option. 
Our Code of Ethics 4.09, behavior analysts review and appraise the restrictiveness of procedures and always recommend the least restrictive procedures likely to be effective, gives us the responsibility as behavior analysts to not use mechanical restraints on our clients no matter the level of severity a client is partaking in. There are a few concerns I have in regards to using mechanical restraints with our clients. First, mechanical restraints do not treat. They are not function-based treatments, which again, we are responsible to follow with Ethics Code 2.09a. Clients have the right to effective treatment, I.E., based on research literature and adapted to the individual client. Behavior analysts always have the obligation to advocate for and educate the client about scientifically supported most effective treatment. Effective treatment procedures have been validated as having both long-term and short-term benefits to client and society. In my opinion, mechanical restraints seem more like a band-aid to a severe problem that needs better treatment. Second, therapist rapport with clients can be affected over time. As behavior analysts, our standards are set high in being well-educated to provide our clients with behavior-changing tools in which we are trained to use. By performing such highly intrusive measures on our clients, we can potentially lose the rapport we once had with them. I personally have had to use mechanical restraints on a client that engaged in severe closed fist punching to his head. The individual's behavior plan was to use a mechanical restraint, in this case a helmet, if his behavior met criterion, which would be closed fist punches to the head. The closed fist punches to his head were so severe that he started developing bald spots. In order to prevent further injury after all other interventions were unsuccessful, a helmet had to be placed on his head that kind of resembled helmet a football player would use out on the field except more padding and more bulky. My client hated the helmet and it seemed to be more adversive to him now than it does as a means of protection. This client continued becoming more upset with the helmet on, still trying to punch his head, until he exhausted himself, which caused him to stop. Is putting this helmet on serving the purpose of keeping him safe, or is the helmet being used as an easy convenience for us therapists not having to deal with blocking his punches to the head? My third concern with the use of mechanical restraints kind of refers back to what I mentioned prior. Our client's dignity seems to go out the window when they're being put in a restraint. A discussion by Professor Ellen Sachs, Orrin B. Evans, Professor of Law, psychology and psychiatry and the behavioral science specializes in mental health law and shares with us her own personal experience. Sachs has been studying ethical dilemmas with the use of restraints in clients with mental illnesses and reports back that she herself has a mental illness, schizophrenia, and shares with her audience that she has been placed in restraints for long periods of time and now hopes to help other patients that have experienced similar trauma. Sachs writes, I've been mechanically restrained three or four times for up to 20 hours. It was degrading, dehumanizing, and very painful. I've had nightmares about it for years. Those three words alone, degrading, dehumanizing, and painful, should raise red flags for behavior analysts that, again, we need to do better by abolishing the use of mechanical restraints and find better research for least intrusive intervention programs because this could cause trauma. Do our clients even get a say on mechanical restraints being used on them? I do believe they're entitled to consent on their individualized behavior plan. My last concern with the use of mechanical restraints is the potential for clients relying on them to prevent injury to themselves. I mentioned above, mechanical restraints do not treat, but I almost feel like saying it for a third time. Mechanical restraints do not treat. I sound like a broken record, but restraints are basically band-aids. It gives our clients no solution to their problem behavior. If we are going to use mechanical restraints on our clients for their safety and others, then a plan needs to be put in place to fade them immediately. Thanks, Megan. I just want to take a minute to apologize for the differences of audio. We did record in separate spots. So the next segment of our debate is the crossfire. Both sides will have an opportunity to ask and respond to each other's questions. We will begin with a question from Nicole, representing the con side of the motion. Megan, representing the pro side, will answer and then follow up with her own question. This alternating pattern will continue until the end of the segment. Again, the motion is, restraints are not appropriate to use regardless of the severity of the behavior. Debaters, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability and ask for clarification if necessary. And you know how we roll on the showdown, keep it respectful. Um, we got some feedback that it was difficult to tell when the questions were changing. So when they do, you will hear this sound. <laughs> Channeling my inner Game Boy. All right, girls, you have the stage for the crossfire. What happens when the least restrictive procedures aren't enough? For example, there are cases in which individuals cause real permanent damage to their body. I can think of examples of children gouging their own eyes out or ripping off their ears. 
If less restrictive procedures aren't enough to prevent a client from causing extreme harm to themselves or others, then we are failing at researching the correct intervention for that specific client. We must continue to research and trial least restrictive procedures and figure out what works best for our client. Functional communication training, DRAs, DRIs, enriched environments. We need to look harder and differently at the situation or refer out to someone who has the ability to find better, safer solutions. There are clients who seek out restraint and find it reinforcing. How would you go about treating students who find that restraint reinforcing? Well, the answer depends on what specifically is reinforcing to that client. If they're reinforced by attention from others in the room, the restraint may have to be implemented somewhere as private as possible. If they're reinforced by attention from staff, the staff should ensure they are not making eye contact or making superfluous conversation during the restraint procedure. If the client is being automatically reinforced by the feeling of restraint, it may be necessary to evaluate the type of restraint being used. In all of these situations, it may not be possible to completely avoid the client contacting reinforcement, but there are definitely ways to minimize it. If restraint procedures are never appropriate, what should one do when a crisis situation presents itself? Meaning that the individual is engaging in aberrant behavior with high magnitude and frequency that can no longer be safely maintained. I would do my best to block each self-injurious behavior that is incurring. If I know a client has a history of punches to the head, then I will use a response block, such as a small pad in between their head that does not actually touch any part of their body, which would be considered a restraint. The blocking pad is solely there to block those punches. I will constantly redirect the client's hands down and then give positive reinforcement when hands are down. I could distract the pattern of hitting and have the client work on a simple work through, one of which they can do very easily to ease any frustration they may have and hopefully distract the injuries to oneself. Immediately following the incident, I would gather the team and create po positive behavior supports to identify how we can help this client. We would need to develop a plan and teach the plan immediately when the client is calm, reinforce it, and encourage the client to use it when we see precursor behaviors. Whatever happened to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act? This law clearly states that school districts must use positive behavioral supports and functional behavior assessment plans if a child's behavior interferes with their education or the education of others. As far as I know, positive behavioral supports include routines, ability to request for breaks, positive phrasing, tangible reinforcers, and modeling. Restraints are not considered a positive behavioral support. How can the use of mechanical restraints still be put in use with IDEA put in place? IDEA states that those with special needs are entitled to an education tailored to their own specific needs. If data and the FBA support the need for restraint procedures, that is not an infringement of their rights. Another premise of IDEA is the right of an individual to a least restrictive environment. In order to implement restraints ethically, other least restrictive methods must have already been exhausted. Thus, the restraint procedure is the least restrictive intervention for this specific individual. Guys, this is a very delicate topic and I really appreciate your insight, your questions, and your really candid responses. Our next segment will be the rebuttal. Nicole, representing the con side, will speak first. Nicole, the floor is yours. Megan, I hear what you're saying about restraints not teaching anything, but this is why we do not use only punishment and treatment packages. In order to ethically use restraint procedures, there must be positive behavior supports in place to teach appropriate, functionally equivalent responses. For example, research suggests that treatment packages that employ both restraint and DRA are effective at eliminating aberrant behaviors such as severe self-injury or aggression. Restraint procedures are a tool in our repertoire we may use when appropriate to decrease severe challenging behaviors and maintain safety, but they're not the cure. That brings me to your point about restraints merely being a band-aid. I would argue that sometimes you need a band-aid. You've passed the point where you can do antecedent interventions. Positive behavior supports did not work and the individual has reached the threshold for crisis. The behavior needs to stop right now or someone is going to get hurt. Once the client is calm again, then those interventions can be implemented again. If it's determined the treatment package is ineffective, at the very least, you and your client have avoided serious injury. You now have the opportunity to go back to the drawing board and reevaluate the treatment package. Moreover, restraints do not have to be a permanent part of a client's plan. Ideally, they should ultimately be faded out. But before that can happen, they can be a necessary and appropriate tool to maintain safety. I've been considering the case of your client who wears protective headgear. It seems like the helmet is being used as a form of extinction. 
he's able to still engage in the behavior until he gives up due to the inability to contact reinforcement, in this case, head hitting. If no one were to block this behavior, he would continue hitting himself until he had more bald spots or worse. In this case, it is protecting him, even if he does not seem to like it. I think another important thing to bring up is that restraint is often used as a positive punishment procedure. The helmet, while it is protecting him, should be aversive. Otherwise, it would be increasing the dangerous aberrant behavior we're trying to eliminate. I also think that maintaining the client's dignity is of the utmost importance. With the proper training, it is possible to do this while implementing restraint procedures. Every time I have had crisis management training, I had to be put into restraint, whether it was a personal or a mechanical restraint as part of the training. These experiences were essential when I had to implement restraining procedures with the clients. It is important to know how vulnerable one can feel during those times. It is definitely uncomfortable. Remember, it's a punishment. I kept these feelings in mind every time I had to restrain an individual and tried to put myself in their position. Staff should be trained not to have conversations while engaged in restraint. There are also ways to ensure the individual's privacy, such as setting up a perimeter or doing it out of sight of their peers. Furthermore, no one should ever be restrained for 20 hours. According to professional crisis management, individuals can be restrained for up to 30 minutes, at which point the restraint must be faded out. Restraint is not supposed to be fun or enjoyable for staff or the client, but with the right training, professionalism, and some empathy, we can work to maintain our client's dignity. Nicole, you made some great points. Thank you. Now Megan, representing the pro side, will give her rebuttal. Go for it, Megan. Nicole. I understand your reasoning behind mechanical restraints ultimately being used to maintain client and other safety. You bring up very valid points that the client's behaviors needs to be immediately stopped because they can cause serious injury to themselves or others, which is what we do not want. However, restraint, whether mechanical or physical, can actually result in emotional and physical trauma, serious injury, and even death. To quote, Physically applying mechanical restraints is a risky intervention where clients can develop deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolisms, and lactic acidosis, which can contribute to cardiovascular collapse, broken bones, etc. This has been shown in at least six studies, Chan et al. Not to mention the negative psychological impact mechanical restraints leave patients feeling helpless, angry, trapped, sad, fearsome, unpleasant, or offended, and patients often regard it as an injustice or see it as punishment, in the worst case developing lifetime trauma and possibly post-traumatic stress disorder. Clients that engage in such severe, problematic behavior clearly have other mental health issues going on. Why would we want to inflict more issues on them? We're supposed to be there to support them and implement interventions so they can live a better functional life, not add more to their issues. I am glad we can agree that maintaining our client's dignity is of utmost importance. I also agree that with proper training, maintaining our client's dignity can be implemented. However, in the heat of the moment when a client is engaging in severe problematic behavior and is becoming out of control, do staff really implement restraint procedures gently? I tend to think not. I too have experienced being put in a restraint to understand how vulnerable our clients are during these rough moments. I will admit the staff who had to lower me down to the mat, hold my wrist and legs, did so gently. At that moment in time, restraint procedures did not seem to do harm. However, a completely different scenario happens in the heat of the moment with a client who was aggressive towards staff. Three staff lowered this client onto a 6x4 mat at 2 inches thick and it was a mess. The client continued having difficulty calming down after a few minutes and another staff member had to come over to hover over our over his legs. Four staff members on one client. I would say that when in that moment of bringing down a client, it sadly appears to be a fight, adrenaline rushes through your body. The client is getting amped up, staff are getting amped up, and doing whatever they need to gain control. Just a question, but when you hear the word adrenaline, what do you define it as in this situation? In this situation, I define it as more pressure being placed on an individual to gain control over a messy situation, which could potentially result in bruising on the client's body and violate most restraint procedures. Now again, I know we are doing these restraints to maintain safety, but are we realizing the amount of strength we are putting on our clients when doing it? There's a great chance we are furthering injury. 
Don't get me started now on staff not involved in a restraint procedure and students peeking to see what all the ruckus is all about on the floor. Yes, a mat is typically put up to block off others' views, but we know staff and students will still find a way to peek at what's going on. I came across a recent issue where a client had to go and restraint for engaging in self-injurious behavior. During this time, the classroom was getting a new teaching assistant who was observing. The new teaching assistant was coming back from lunch when this restraint was occurring and stood in the corner of the room watching us implement the restraint procedure on the student. She was staring directly at the scene that was being made dead center in the classroom. I kindly asked if she could step out the hallway for two reasons. One, client dignity and privacy. Two, the obvious staring made myself feel uncomfortable. I can only imagine what the student was feeling. Minutes later, I was called down to my school's office, unsure of what we were about to discuss. Beside myself with this discussion, but I was questioned why I asked the observer to leave. I was told she should have stayed to observe the restraint procedure being implemented on the client so she could understand what physical restraints entitle. This is not okay to me. I stand firm with my feelings that in cases where a client has a history of dangerous behavior for which a restraint is needed to be used, a school or outside company should have a plan for teaching and supporting more appropriate behavior and determine positive methods to prevent behaviors escalating to the point of restraint. This is really thought-provoking. Thank you, Megan. That was a lot to consider. The next segment of our debate is the second crossfire. I, as the moderator, will ask the questions of both sides, so since I will separate them, uh, we won't need the game soundbite, so I apologize for that. We will attempt to keep an alternating pattern of responding. Debaters, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability and ask for clarification if possible. As always, keep it respectful. So a question actually for both of you. When situations involving clients and restraints go badly, causing further injury to the client or others, do you think it's typically due to staff error or a change in client's behavior, inappropriate assessment? Um, let me know what you think. Nicole, you want to answer first? Sure. From my experience, injuries are often due to staff error or inappropriate assessment. Some children are not candidates for restraint procedures. They might find them reinforcing for a variety of reasons that may increase the magnitude of the behavior resulting in injury. While restraint procedures can be appropriate for those with severe challenging behaviors, it is not a one-size-fits-all solution. This is why we do not often jump right into restraining someone unless there is a crisis. Once again, crisis meaning the behavior has reached a frequency and magnitude that can no longer be safely maintained. On the other hand, yes, there can be staff errors. According to the research I discussed earlier, personal restraints result in an injury more often than mechanical restraint due to the fact that personal restraints are prone to human error. It is a human restraining another human, as opposed to someone being restrained by an item or garment. Inanimate objects that are designed safely should not be causing harm. Either way, staff should be trained often and well to reduce the possibility for injury. Thanks, Nicole. Megan, I'm going to repeat. Um, when situations involving clients and restraints go badly, causing further injury to the client or others, do you think it's typically due to staff error, a change in client's behavior, inappropriate assessment? What do you think? From experience, I find that it can go both ways. I think further injury to our clients while in restraint can occur because of our client's change in behavior and because of staff errors. I know I have mentioned prior that some clients seek restraint and for some finds it reinforcing. There could be a hidden factor with restraint, perhaps pressure on the body that clients are unable to obtain with other tools to replace human-on-human contact or that staff just haven't figured out. They can also seek for attention from others. Physical restraints typically have more than one person involved, unless it's transportation by one person. During this, all eyes are typically focused on the client to ensure safety, and while this may not even cross our mind, we could be giving the client exactly what they want. Attention. When eyes stop glaring at the client or when holes start to fade, the client may go back at even more high intensity of aggressive or self-injurious behavior to get what they just lost or are starting to lose, which is restraint and attention. I also mentioned how I think Further injury to clients could be due to staff errors. Personally, I am PCM certified, which stands for Professional Crisis Management. I practice restraints utilized with clients multiple times during my training. I need to pass applying three specific restraints appropriately and then pass a written exam to become certified. This only happens once a year. I don't feel that once a year training for implementing physical restraints is enough. It is a serious matter to take part in and training should occur once a month, even if it's just a brief review and practice of doing restraints correctly. 
If I must apply physical restraints, I'd rather do so with confidence that I know exactly where my hand placement should be on a person's body so restraints applied are done correctly. Staff errors occur because of incorrect hand placement, lack of communication with other staff, not understanding a client's behavior plan for when they hit crisis, or just not asking for clarification on using physical restraints appropriately. This could further injury on ourselves as well as our client. Okay, so we submitted this question to some of our employees and uh, we got some questions. So this question comes from Jillian D. Tiberius for Nicole. What do you plan as a fading procedure if mechanical restraints are required for a particular client? This depends on the client, what type of mechanical restraint is being used, and the reason they're needed. For example, I worked with an individual who engaged in type 3 self-interest behaviors or self-interest behaviors including self-restraint. He used his own sweatshirt as a mechanical restraint on himself, twisting his arms up into it until it left marks on him. We could not take the sweatshirt away cold turkey as doing this led to severe self-injury to the face and sometimes resulted in hospital visits. The fade-out procedure included taking the sweatshirt away for a set amount of time, providing positive reinforcement in the form of arm squeezes or other topography similar to the way he was restraining himself, and then letting him have the sweatshirt back contingent on him asking for it. We ultimately lengthened these times in order to systematically and slowly fade this out. You do not want to compromise the safety of the individual when doing this. On the other hand, mechanical restraints that are used to ensure staff safety can be removed a little quicker. However, fading these may be difficult. There is a reason the individual had to be put into a mechanical restraint in the first place. A personal restraint probably wasn't maintaining them safely. Here you'd have to be very careful to ensure staff are trained properly and extensively vet crisis training programs to find the right one to safely maintain this individual. Jill also sent in this question for Megan. What would you suggest be done if you've done antecedent programming, put in procedures to de-escalate behaviors, and done everything else right, and the client is still injuring him or herself, and the problem behavior can't be controlled or reduced? In the event that antecedent programming, trying procedures to de-escalate behaviors, and have done everything else correctly, and the client is still injuring him or herself, and the problem behavior can't be controlled or reduced, then I would look over the individual's FBA and read up what is causing behaviors. If denied access to tangible causes severe behaviors, then I may look into giving them access to all items when asked appropriately and reinforce positive behavior. If the FBI was to say that they seek for constant attention, which is done inappropriately and causes behaviors, then I may overwhelm the client with attention constantly when engaging in appropriate behavior. It totally seems like I am giving it to the client for their every need. However, while I am doing just that, I would also be using this as an opportunity to conduct more research or potentially refer them to another location suitable for their needs. Okay, thanks. And thanks, Jill, for those questions. This question is for Nicole. In a lot of general education schools and other settings with minimal SIB or aggressive behavior, staff are trained yearly, but most rarely implement a restraint procedure. Some staff who have low but still possible chances of needing to implement restraint are not trained. Many staff have been trained in the past but are not current with their training. So what would your suggestions be for those staff if a student begins displaying dangerous SIB or aggression towards other students or staff? Also, how would you account for training disparities? Um, like some examples, some restraint training is superior to others. Some trainers not are not thorough enough. Some trainings don't include enough practice. What do you think? It is the administration or clinical team's responsibility to ensure staff are trained well and frequently. Ideally, they should be recertified yearly and informal trainings can be held as needed. An untrained staff member, no matter the situation, should not be involved in a restraint procedure. This is how staff and clients get injured. This also opens you up for possible abuse, lawsuits, and breaking the law. Clinical and administrative teams are also free to choose the crisis management programs they find superior and most appropriate to use, to an extent as long as they are approved by higher-ups, legal in their state, and the resources are available. If the resources are not available, staff cannot be trained, and the child's behavior cannot be managed, that child should not be in the school anymore. They should be moved somewhere more appropriate because that school is no longer an appropriate and safe environment for them, and it is not ethical to continue services that way. Thanks, Nicole. Here's a question for Megan from Candace Summers. 
What about mechanical restraints used for preventative safety? Um, for example, seat belts on a bus, a gate belt on a walker, or leg wraps for walking support. I mean, you could even go as far as putting infants into cribs. Do you think there's a place for these kind of restraints? Tough question to answer as I sit here and try and put my thoughts together on this, but typical mechanical restraints like the ones you have mentioned that are used as preventative safety are vital to keep us safe and even potentially save our lives. I believe the place to use these restraints is in common everyday situations. A seatbelt on the bus is used to keep a kid or person seated in a moving vehicle and can protect us in the event there's an accident. An infant in a crib is a typical mechanical restraint because it keeps a child in a safe area and prevents the possibility of a serious fall. Even hand-holding is considered a type of restraint, a physical one, and is a normality of everyday life. I don't ever see a parent or a guardian letting their young child walk across the street without their hand being held in the event of them running away or even getting hit by a car. In my opinion, I feel like there's commonalities with restraints that are used every day, and then there's restraints that are not really common and should never be used or at the very least as a last resort. Hey, quick interruption. If you are listening to Gain That Ethics Continuing Education Hour, your second code word is trees, T-R-E-E-S. I enjoy sitting under them. I enjoy growing them, walking in them. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Your second code word for your ethics continuing education hour is trees. Okay, thanks for all those answers, girls. You've really put a lot of effort into making sure we're respectful of all stakeholders. Our next and final segments will be the summary and final focus. Nicole, representing the con side, will speak first. Nicole, you have the floor. To conclude my argument, I want you to imagine this hypothetical situation. You're working with a client who has severe self-injurious behaviors that are maintained by access to tangibles. The treatment package includes banding for desired items and accepting no when they're not available. You work on these programs regularly and the client is doing very well. They have even mastered accepting no for moderately reinforcing items. However, today it's raining, thundering, and lightning. Your client asks to go on the playground, which is their highest reinforcer, but it's simply not available. You tell them it's not available and try to lessen the blow by offering other highly reinforcing items and activities. But the only thing that could please this client right now is that playground, and now they're beginning to headbang into the glass window repeatedly with dangerous force. You cannot redirect them, and blocking them is not working. What do you do in this situation to keep the individual safe? Positive behavior supports are wonderful, and positive reinforcement is one of the cornerstones of ABI. However, sometimes they cannot change behavior on their own, and punishment procedures such as restraint need to be used. Other times, situations can become unsafe in a matter of seconds, like in the situation I just discussed, and restraint could be the only way to maintain the safety of your client and staff. I know that the ultimate goal is to eliminate aberrant behavior and teach appropriate, functionally equivalent responses. But at the end of the day, I also want to keep my clients safe. Restraints are just another tool in my repertoire to do that. And as previously stated in my opening, research has been done, for example, by Spret et al. that backs this up. It is up to us as behavior therapists and analysts to advocate for the safety of our clients, choose evidence-based interventions to evoke socially valid behavior change, and when we need to, to implement restraint ethically, safely, and with as much regard for our client's dignity as possible. Thanks so much, Nicole. Now giving her summary and final focus, Megan, representing the pro side, will make her closing statements. Megan, the floor is yours. I have complete respect for Nicole's side of the argument on why mechanical restraints are sometimes absolutely needed to keep our clients safe in the event that they are causing severe harm to themselves or others. In this case, denied access to outside, causing the client to bang their head into the window with extreme force, I could understand why mechanical restraints would be implemented when all else has failed in the example that you have given. However, the alternate items that were considered in your example that were highly reinforcing to this client may actually not have been as highly reinforcing as one may think. Clearly, the alternate item opposed to not being able to go outside was not a good choice in alternates because the client's behavior became worse. It is our responsibility to be up to date on preference assessments, both primary and secondary for our clients. In case the listener is not aware or needs a bit of a refresher, preference assessments tell us what is reinforcing or rewarding to one individual. 
These assessments aim to identify an individual's favorite things so that they can be used as rewards or potential reinforcers of appropriate and desired behavior. These should be conducted based on your client as an individual. If you know that your client's choice and reinforcers changes often, then conduct an assessment often. If you know your client's choice and reinforcers doesn't change as often, perhaps conduct an assessment every two weeks. I want my listeners to really think about preventative measures in detail. Take detailed note of precursor behavior. Implement de-escalating techniques that are known to work well with your client if their behavior starts to get escalated. Distract clients with work-throughs that are easy for them to do or something they find fun to do. I have a client that seems to really enjoy sorting. I have sorting materials in hand's reach when I notice precursor behavior starting to occur for him to do as a distraction. I also suggest being up-to-date on preference assessments like I mentioned above. To defend my argument on why mechanical restraints are not appropriate to use, regardless to the severity of problem behavior, I want to shift my focus to one I myself have found frightening. A client gets placed in a restraint. He or she is crying, screaming, becoming more agitated, and you, the therapist who implemented the restraint on him or her, is making an assumption that they're crying, screaming, and getting agitated because they're engaging in a behavior. You come to later find out, once he or she is calm, that the pressure applied on the restraint was so intense, the client had bruises on them that were not there prior to the behavior occurring. The restraint that was supposed to be used for safety was hurting him or her, and you didn't even know it. I have experienced this happen with the client before, and there was no telling if it was actually staff that caused the bruising or the client themselves. Now go about your day and let that sink in. It's an awful feeling to have as a therapist whose job is to keep our clients safe realize you may have actually caused more harm. Thanks, ladies, for your thoughtful and thorough defense of your sides. This is easily the most difficult topic that we have tackled to date. The use of restraints or lack thereof can be a matter of life or death in some cases, so a thorough investigation into appropriateness is definitely warranted. There's a lot at stake, and you guys really helped to shine a light on the pros and cons of each side. I hope this podcast gets disseminated to politicians involved in the legislation, as well as parents and practitioners who are facing these tough decisions. All right, so stay tuned at the beginning of every month for a new ABA Ultimate Showdown episode. Our next topic may actually include some surveys of our listeners, so stay tuned for that. If you have ideas or topics for future debates, have respectful suggestions on ways we can improve this podcast, or if you are interested in being a guest debater, please email showdown at grahambehavior.com. If you have enjoyed what you've heard and found your aha moment, please subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website at grahambehaviorservices.com backslash showdown. Like or follow Graham Behavior Services on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. And visit our YouTube channel to be alerted when new episodes are out. We also appreciate your thoughtful review on the platform you listen to us. Finally, we ask our audience two things. Be respectful and thoughtful when you respond to other people and their ideas. Remember that everyone has a unique learning history that has brought them to this moment. It will make you a better person and further promote behavior analysis. And number two, go forth and deliver good ABA. This podcast has been brought to you by Graham Behavior Services. Graham Behavior Services provides quality, comprehensive, evidence-based therapy to individuals with any behavior challenges or an autism spectrum disorder to create effective behavior change in themselves while empowering their families to help them pursue productive, purposeful, and fulfilling lives. Graham Behavior Services, professional, supportive, optimistic, proactive, compassionate, scientific, trustworthy.